about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd, and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Oh, that didn't sound good. How are we all today? Good. Oh, so, someone said something interesting. It's cold. You're cold. Of course you are. Well, I, I was saying to people beforehand, when, you, when you're preaching, you don't feel the cold. It's a remarkable thing. The, the heat of nervous tension, which uh, warms you up. And um, yeah, there we go. And a new edition today, by the way, as well as a new sermon series. Look, there's, there's a little white sticker here, which I, I know. No, no, Stefan's put it there. And I'm not allowed to, to go beyond there. So I can go from here to here, which rather neatly fits my natural position on the political spectrum. Just to the right of Roddy. So that's, that may be where the metaphor breaks down, actually. But there we go. Um, so it's uh, thank you, Stefan. This is for the benefit of those online. Hello, those online. Great to have you with us as well. So you can see me. Um, you may also be able to hear me, uh, which may or may not be a good thing. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, this will be a, a sermon and a sermon series that is really uh, really helpful and really galvanizing for us as a church. And if I haven't seen you already uh, this year, Happy New Year. But I, I want to ask you, if I turned that greeting into a question, what would your answer be? 
Would happiness be your defining characteristic as we begin 2022? Or are you struggling with altogether different emotions? Now, if you are struggling a little, join the club. But as we enter 2022, I think it's fair to say that uh, not many of us are quite where we want to be. The lingering pandemic is getting us down and even keeping quite a sizable part of our congregation away. Hopefully in a few weeks at least that will start to improve. But that will still leave the spiritual flatness and weariness that the pandemic has produced in many of us and which in our heart of hearts I think we would all love to change. And that's what this sermon series, Better Than, is designed to help us do. Get us back individually to the place in our walk with Jesus that we long to be. Or for others to help us explore faith or grow in the faith that we've recently gained. And I hope you agree that after a term focusing on rebuilding our life together as a church, this more personal focus is what we now need. And what better way to do that than by reflecting on the teaching and example of Jesus in Luke to lift us to a better way of living and thinking in every area of our lives. And that's where the title of the series, Better Than, comes from. So today I want to talk about the starting point for this journey by unpacking the first public recorded sermon that Jesus ever preached. You won't find it on YouTube, but you will find it in Luke 4. And it's a great passage, drawing on two fascinating stories from the Old Testament too. So let's pray that God speaks to us through it now. Father God, thank you for Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection and his sending of the Holy Spirit. And we pray over the course of this service, Lord, you would touch us by your Spirit. Fill us through your Spirit with renewed passion and hunger and joy as we respond honestly to what you say to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I have to say, as I look at this story in Luke 4, it gives me some measure of comfort to think that if Jesus' preaching could cause such a stir, perhaps there's hope for me. Not that I mean to offend you, it's just that from time to time, preachers tend to ruffle a few feathers, step on a few toes. It's an occupational hazard. More than that, it's the nature of proclamation. God's word is a word of judgment and grace. It comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. The word of God is not simply food for thought, something to think about, to mull over, to consider for what it's worth. Rather, God's word is confrontational. It calls us to account for the way that we live out our life. It invites us to surrender our wills to God's will and to honour him, him as the sovereign Lord of our lives. And this is the crux 
of the text before us today. Jesus proclaimed the word of the Lord to the people of God. And in so doing, he upset the elders to such an extent that they drove him out of the synagogue and tried to throw him off a cliff. So I'm glad that you haven't done that. Although obviously there aren't any cliffs in Camberley, so uh, I'm not quite sure what you'd do if there were, but I certainly won't be initiating a church walk up the obelisk, that's for sure. (laughs) But why did this extreme reaction to Jesus happen? Well, the story begins. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And we know from verses 14 and 15 that this isn't the first time that Jesus has preached. On the contrary, he's been doing it widely in the synagogues right across Galilee, such that it tells us news had spread throughout the countryside, and everyone praised him. But this is the first time in Nazareth, his hometown, which, as we will see, makes it far more challenging, but which also makes it more typical of the mixed response that Jesus will go on to experience as his ministry develops. And I think that's why Luke chooses to launch his account of Jesus' ministry with it, partly because it speaks particularly to the Gentiles, as the examples that we'll hear Uh, that Jesus gives clearly illustrate, but also because it cuts straight to the heart in terms of confronting our motives. For the impact Jesus intends to make on us is not simply some encouraging words that we thank him for and then forget about and get on with our lives. It's meant to be far more challenging than that, such that our lives and our mindset And our hearts are radically transformed. And so on this particular Sabbath, he got up to read. Now, we don't know why. Did various men take turns reading the scriptures week on week? And was he just taking his turn? Or did he ask that he read the scripture that day? Or did someone else ask him to read? We're not told. Luke simply says, Jesus stood up to read. And the passage he read was from the prophet Isaiah. Again, we don't know why. Did he ask the the clerk for the scroll marked Isaiah, or was this just a scroll that was handed to him in God's providence? It's not clear. Luke simply says that once he was handed the scroll, he unfurled it to a particular passage, Isaiah 61, to be exact, and he began to read. And it's largely from this prophecy that we glean the character of, of Jesus. And I'll read the words again. They are truly memorable, wonderful, beautiful words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. For this is a defining moment in the life of Jesus because from it we come to know that he is the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks about many times whose purpose is to give hope to the poor, sight to the blind, release to the captives and liberation to all those who are oppressed. In short, the Messiah. And what does this say about our priorities 
of our lives today as we seek to follow in his footsteps? Who are the ones we ought to be most concerned about? The rich and powerful or the poor and powerless? Should the bulk of our time be spent socializing with friends or reaching out to those less fortunate? Should the lion's share of our church budget be spent on maintenance or mission? These are some of the hard questions that we need to be asking. But as we'll go on to see, the focus of Jesus' words is actually far broader than those experiencing those needs physically, as his own ministry would go on to demonstrate. He never went into the prisons, for example. He wasn't just interested in those physical needs. And that means, of course, that it extends to each of us and the spiritual and emotional needs that we all have. And then, when he finished reading, he sat down to preach his sermon. This was the practice of rabbinic teaching. The rabbi sat while the listeners stood. So what I thought we could do now is I'd sit down and you can all stand up for the rest of the sermon. Yeah? Okay, Okay, maybe not. That really didn't go around well at the nine o'clock, I can tell you. But <laughs> Actually, I didn't dare say it there. But <laughs> they had their tradition back in rabbinic times. We have ours. And I have to say also, by way of contrast, his sermon is considerably simpler and considerably shorter. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Job done. A two-second sermon, or so it would seem. And the elders were impressed. They obviously like short sermons too. Luke writes, all testified about him and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? For of course they all knew him as the carpenter's son. And I can't help feeling that if the passage finished there, it would be the Jesus most of our world wishes that they had. One who we think we can put in a box and who says nothing uncomfortable, in fact, virtually nothing at all, who we can praise with warm words at the appropriate moment, perhaps at Christmas and Easter, but who brings no challenge and no transformation to our lives. Yet that's not who Jesus is. And the truth is, it's certainly not what we need either. Rather, the real Jesus is the one who then has something far more challenging to say in the rest of this passage. And he's certainly not someone we can just applaud and dismiss. And so Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. And this is Jesus reading right into their hearts. For he knows that although they've affirmed him for his gracious words, whatever that means, they don't actually believe he is the means by which this scripture is fulfilled. They're not clicking that by declaring the prophecy now fulfilled, Jesus was actually claiming to be the suffering servant of whom Isaiah had spoken, the one who God had sent to redeem Israel, indeed all mankind. For they don't believe that. Not the Jesus they think they know, the carpenter's son. Instead, Jesus knows that surely, as he presses his claims, they will demand signs because they fail to believe in his words alone. And to illustrate his point, 
He then quotes two stories from the Old Testament that they would have known well, and I'm going to concentrate on the first one. And it comes from 1 Kings 17, in which God was withholding rain from Israel. The drought was a judgment for Israel's idolatry, led by the royal couple Ahab and Jezebel. So the Lord commanded Elijah to go to Zarephath, just um, outside Israel, where a widow, a Gentile widow, would provide food for him. And he obeyed, finding a woman gathering sticks. He said to her, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink, and bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. The widow, however, was in great need herself. And she responded, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. That's verse 13. She expected the meal she was about to fix to be the last for her family. She had no other prospect than to die of starvation. And Elijah's answer was surely a test of her faith. He told her that she was to make some food for him anyway, using the last of her ingredients for him. He added a promise, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. The widow's faith was evident in her obedience. And God was faithful to his promise. She and her and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. A wonderful story, a true story. But Jesus didn't stop there. He then reminded them of another incident in Jewish history concerning a Syrian army commander named Naaman. This was set in the time of Elisha, Elijah's successor, as you probably know. And Naaman was a leper who was cleansed by the power of God when all the other lepers, i.e. the Jewish ones, were left unclean. Now, not only was Naaman an unlikely recipient of God's mercy, again, he was a Gentile, an outsider, not one of the people of God. Now, of course, Jesus is making a point about his kingdom being for Gentiles as much as Jews. And to his audience there, that was unpopular enough, albeit pretty popular with us. But he's also making a point about faith, which Naaman and the impoverished widow did demonstrate, but which his listeners did not. But what is this faith? Well, it's faith that comes from desperate, heartfelt need, whilst responding obediently to the instructions they've been given by God. The widow, for example, knew she had no hope except through God. And so although she was asked to use the very last resources that she had as a test of her faith, she trusted him. And once she'd taken that step, she was rewarded And in slightly less critical but still desperate circumstances, Naaman, that senior commander with leprosy, was asked to humble himself and do what Elisha told him, despite the fact that he was offended that Elisha didn't even agree to meet with him and just sent instructions through a messenger. And it was only when he 
after a while, and if you know the story, you'll know he's persuaded to do it by his servant. But only after he was willing to obey in that humbling display of faith that he was rewarded, recognizing his own desperate need from God. But it's not just faith for physical provision, physical healing, that is the relevance of these stories for us, wonderful though they are. And I say that because Jesus in his teaching and everything else he teaches after it and even before it probably says that this message is relevant to everyone. He proclaims it to everyone. He doesn't go to the prison to preach it. He proclaims it to everyone. Whether suffering literally with physical poverty, physical captivity or physical sickness. So what he's surely talking about here primarily is spiritual deprivation, spiritual hunger, spiritual captivity, and the need for spiritual healing, though God does many miracles to address those other physical things too, of course, as we know. And that was clearly, those spiritual needs were something that everyone shared and had. And so the other problem with his listeners is this. Not only do they fail to recognize him as the Messiah, but crucially in this early stage, what they also fail to recognize is their own desperate spiritual need. So now the true nature of Jesus' claim, his challenge and his offer has been revealed, perhaps for the first time in his ministry, which is perhaps the reason it's the first sermon to be recorded And the claim and the challenge and the offer is this. It's only when you recognize your own desperate spiritual poverty, captivity and sickness that you can actually experience the true blessing and true liberation and true healing that the Messiah and the kingdom brings. So that is the starting point for receiving the joy, the spiritual refreshment and the purpose that we all need and crave with which I began. It's recognizing our need, responding to God's love, and stepping out to receive it in faith, just as Naaman and the widow of Zarephath did. Nothing more and nothing less. Which, yes, includes the need for forgiveness, which is our first and greatest need but also the need for spiritual refreshment and refilling and renewed passion and desire with all the benefits that that will bring. And addressing that spiritual apathy, that spiritual dryness that so many of us are struggling with right now. So the response Jesus is looking for from us is to get on our knees and say, I need you. I want you. I love you. And when God calls you to action, to obey, just as Naaman and just as that poor widow did. So what we're going to do now is the band are going to come up and we're going to move into a song that I want to present to you as a prayer. It's a song which is a way of expressing your recognition of your need 
of your spiritual hunger and desperation to be renewed, to recover your first love, to be set on fire again for him, to get back to the place that you long to be, that he called you to be, that perhaps you've known before, but know that you've fallen short of right now. And I want to give you the opportunity also to express that physically as well. So during this song, as the song goes on, I invite you to sing as a prayer. But also, I invite you just to come forward if you would like to. And you can come and kneel on the steps here. You can stand in the the big open space that we've got around. And during that song, as you offer yourself, if you want to do that in that physical way as well, to Jesus. Well, we've got a small team of people available to uh, pray for you. If you want to be prayed for, just um, put your hand up as you're standing there and and they can do that. They can just gather, uh, one person will just gather and perhaps uh, just pray for you. Uh, behind you or to the side of you as we sing and then after that i'm going to pray for us all in particular for the filling of the holy spirit that we would be ready for all that god has for us this term so will you respond to that call and that offer of jesus let's stand and let's respond